Hi, this is Robert Dobby, and you're listening to What a Character, the podcast dedicated to character actors. Hey everyone, this is C. Thane Dixon, and welcome to the very first episode of What a Character, the podcast dedicated to character actors. Now, some of you might be asking yourself, what exactly is a character actor, and what separates a character actor from a regular actor? Well, character actors are usually actors that play a very distinctive and supportive role in a film or TV series. They might be known for playing a type of character or a multitude of character types. You might see them play the kooky best friend in a romantic comedy, the bad guy's main henchman in a crime thriller, or the comic relief sidekick in an action blockbuster. All in all, character actors may not always be leading men or women, but they can often steal the show and leave you with a lasting impression. Many of you may watch a character actor such as Steve Buscemi or William H. Macy and wonder if they are really like the characters they play so well on screen. Well, on this podcast series, you will hear interviews with many seasoned character actors such as Lance Henriksen, Jake Busey, and Philip Baker Hall, and find that they are vastly different than the types of people you have usually seen them play on screen. Aside from that, you will also hear our guests talk about their experiences working on classic Hollywood films, their creative process, and how they have achieved success in the cutthroat world of show business. So whether you are a film buff who loves to hear stories regarding the making of classic films or you're a journeyman actor looking to carve a career path for yourself, you will definitely enjoy listening to this podcast. Now, let's say you listen to this episode and afterwards you decide, hey, I love this podcast and I really want to show my support. Well, the best way to do that is by subscribing to our show on whatever app you use to stream or download podcasts. For example, you can subscribe to our show on such apps as Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever. You can also show your support by subscribing to our YouTube channel and liking our videos. And if you want to receive email alerts about upcoming shows or receive email-exclusive episodes of our show, you can visit us at whatacharacterpodcast.com and sign up for our email list by typing in your name and email address in the email subscription box located on the right side of the homepage, and clicking on subscribe. And while you're there on the homepage, you can donate to our podcast by clicking on the PayPal link and submitting your desired amount. Remember, every cent and dollar you send us will help us create more episodes and reach an even wider audience. Now, enough of me prattling on about the show. Let's get on with the show. Here is part one of my interview with the prolific and uber-talented Daniel Roebuck. Enjoy. Our guest today has been everything from a circus clown to a murderous psychopath to even a four-foot-tall Jedi. He's an actor who started out as a child actor in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, appearing in everything from local stage productions to circus shows and what have you. In his early adult years, he decided to give Hollywood a try as he moved out to L.A. and striked luck by gaining his first role, a lead role, in the film Cave Girl. After that, he, he uh, gained prominent roles in such films as River's Edge, Dudes, The Fugitive, Disorganized Crime, The Late Shift, uh, 
and many, many more. In recent years, he's uh, worked behind the camera as a writer, producer, director on such projects as Getting Grace and The Hail Mary, which he recently just completed. If you're a Star Wars fan, you might know our following guest as the voice of Grease Dritus in the Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order video game. Please welcome the very first guest on What a Character, Mr. Daniel Roebuck. Danny, thank you so much for uh, appearing on the show. It's so interesting. You know, you sit and you listen and it's, you feel like uh, the Huckleberry Finn listening to his own funeral and Tom Sawyer when they thought he was dead and he crawled up into the top of the church. To hear someone say your resume, you think, what happened? Did I die? Do I not know that I'm dead? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I totally get you. T- tell me about your early years. Uh, what, what was your childhood like growing up in, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania? Well, I had a great childhood. Um, I, you know, I know it's it's the way lately to be all about, oh, my childhood was terrible. Oh, it was awful. You know, my parents did they could. They they were working class people who, you know, were educated up to uh, you know, high school, uh, and they. Uh, you know, they did the best they could, and they took us all over. That was kind of the fun thing. We would get in the car every summer, and we, my my father had wanderlust. I have it myself. I like to get in the car and go places. I don't like to sit around. I don't like to. I feel bad if I'm just sitting doing nothing. So then I go and I write a movie or whatever. So I had a great childhood. Uh, I started performing very early, very early. Um, there was no performers in my family, so out of the blue, I just started Talking about when I was, you know, going to be on TV. I'd say, you know, when I'm on TV, I'll, I'll do impressions. And um, I don't, I don't know how these things happen. I mean, I just think I saw my future, and I, I lived toward my future. But uh, as a child, I was performing a lot, Cullen. Like, and I don't mean like, oh, I'm going to do jokes. I had a Routine. I was hired to do. Uh, I did talent shows as an impressionist, and then somebody saw me and hired me to do my little impression show at some event. Like they paid me ten dollars. Was a dollar a minute in 1975, Colin. I was the richest man in Bethlehem. There was nobody <laughs> made a dollar a minute. I even remember saying to my father, "I made a dollar a minute. How much do you make?" <laughs> So uh, I learned that lesson very quickly, uh, and uh, I knew not to discuss money anymore with my parents or anybody else. Uh, and I just was always performing, writing, directing. I started, you know, there's kind of a story that's been going around that's completely true. I, I wrote a play when I was in first grade, but, you know, when you were in first grade when I was a child, you didn't know how to write your name. So the temerity uh, that I must have had when I walked one day and I said I wrote a play and sister Kathleen my first grade teacher said oh well let's perform your play uh and I give her great credit for uh, for being that that first kind of person that uh lit that fire you know it lights somehow uh it combusts it seems a little Odd, maybe I'm overstating it, but 
I, I, that movie, that, that moment is key in my life. So anyway, that's a, I, I feel like I'm talking a lot, but I guess that's kind of the point of this. Uh, so, uh, Ellen, so that was my early life. I was an impressionist, a magician, a clown in a circus. That's true. I was in a circus when I was 12 years old. And then, and then I found, uh, I walked into, a, they showed uh, the Boyd Theater. They showed Give Him Hell Harry, which was a one-man show where James Whitmore played Harry Truman, the president of the United States. But it was a movie. In fact, he got nominated for an Oscar for Best Actor for this movie, but it was just him on stage. They filmed the stage show. Um, and I walked into that Boyd Theater, you know, a performer, an entertainer, and I walked out an actor. I said, that whatever that is, I don't know how to do that. So odd that, uh, isn't it, Colin, that that's the trappings of my youth? And then as an adult, you know, what do I get cast as a lot? I play real people, uh, you know, uh, like James Whitmore played Harry Truman. I played Jay Leno or Gary Marshall or other legitimate, actual, authentic people. Um, so things have come full circle. You know, it's interesting. A lot of actors move out to LA and they kind of forget where, you know, they, they forget about their roots and where they came from. But I, I find it amazing that you just, uh, you, you never forgot about that. And I think that's what makes your roles so believable. I feel, you know, like there's that, that, that thing that people, uh, you know, Midwesterners and Easterners have uh, that uh, is, I don't know how you put it in, you know, Chicagoans have it too, you know, John Montana Monta has this thing, I have my thing. So I'm, I am of, of, I'm of the soil that I came from. And now when I create my own stuff, I go back there for a few reasons. One is I think it's beautiful too. Uh, I have a, a great base uh, of support that I might not get into more Iowa. I mean, they like me for Matt Locker, I fall on order, but they, they, you know, they would not know me personally like they do back where I'm from in Pennsylvania. Uh, so I'm drawn to that place. Because, uh, and it's, isn't it also kind of, it's like the seed of my creativity was born there, Colin. So I keep going back there to like, spark again. So when it comes to writing, uh, what, what writers have always inspired you? Oh, uh, you know, I don't read a lot of fiction. I read a lot of nonfiction. Uh, so uh, a book I read often is William Shire's uh, The Rise and Fall of the Third Right. Uh, I highly recommend people read it today. Uh, there's a great misunderstanding of what's going on in our world. And if you read that book, you'll know exactly what people are up to. So I read a lot of nonfiction, and then I think that helps me as, as a writer. Um, you know, I mean, script writers, who doesn't love William Goldman? But, you know, I, I, uh, I, I'm, I don't think I'm well-read the way other people are. Don't read Harry Potter. I literally buy books about things. I was watching the Manchurian Candidate last night, and you know they they come to Frank Sinatra's his place where he's living, his apartment, and it's filled with books of diverse uh, 
diverse natures. That's kind of what I have. If you look around, I'll I'll have like field directors in the bombing handbook, and I'll have uh, the Coca Cola, and I'll have Brother World. You know, I just always take information and then extrapolate that information out, either as an actor, very helpful, or as a, as a writer myself. It's, it's funny, you know, can I just say, like, when, when, time. well, what I'm trying to say is when actors, writers, directors, uh, they talk about their work, boy, we always sound pompous and stupid. And it's like, I don't want anybody to think that what I do is harder than what they do. I know that. Because uh, I've, I've done what they, I've worked in doors and I've, um, I've shoveled the hole, I've dug ditches. Uh, and uh, I try to be the best I can at everything. But I, I just think it's, you know, ditch diggers never get to say, was that not the greatest six foot drop or air dug by a human being? But an actor will say, oh, it's so difficult, that role, blah, blah. Uh, but I'm, I, I think one of the reasons I'm an everyman is because I feel like every man. I don't feel like an artist. So I'm curious, what inspired you to uh, make the jump from uh, theater to film? Well, I I always was going to be on TV. Like that was, uh, for whatever reason, that was my trajectory. So I had to figure out how to get to TV. Well, the first thing I knew was I wasn't going to get to TV in Pennsylvania. Uh, so step number one, get the hell out of Pennsylvania for a little Number two, get back to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, as soon as I could, uh, after I became a, an established actor. Um, so uh, it's just like a like a, a logical step. Um, as an actor, people think it's very different, but if actors are listening, they'll they'll probably understand. They say acting in the theater and acting on camera. Well, it's not, you know, acting. Acting in a in a theater where there's 700 seats in the audience is different than acting in a theater where there's 50 seats. You know, you do tend uh, do a little less, and you're smart enough to know, you know, the difference of how how much you have, to, not just your the performance. Well, I mean, and then you know to project less when there's a camera. You know, one foot from your mug, uh, a lot less. But I. I uh, I love the theme, uh, and unfortunately in Los Angeles there's no there's no real way to support a family, and I had it for the last you know nearly thirty years. I always had somebody to support, um, so the theater was not it was not the way to do that. So uh, you you lucked out by uh, you know gaining a lead role as soon as you got out to Hollywood. You know, some actors go out there and they have to do extra parts and, and small roles and, and on TV shows, but you, you got the lead role in the, in the film cave girl. Uh, how, how did you uh, strike luck that, that, that first time? Well, the, the first thing to, to be clear on is I was also an extra. Uh, oh. I came out. I, oh yeah, I did that. Sure. Okay. I'm no, I, I, anything to be on a set, anything to be on a set. Uh, I was so happy to be an extra in a Hollywood production. I mean, I, I didn't know anything. I remember, uh, I remember, I didn't even know, am I allowed to sit in that chair? You know, that said, like, <laughs> they were like, no, stupid. Um, oh, okay. I was just asking. 
I didn't know I didn't know uh, anything. So, uh, you know, I did do that. I think maybe the difference is like uh, I'm always listening to this this uh, to the world. I think God's always communicating. Uh, others may think I'm crazy, but uh, you know I've done pretty well, like following not my dream but my path, right? Mm-hmm. And then one day I was going to be an extra. I lived in Hollywood, and I can tell you it was the day Gremlins. This is how specific memory is. Uh, and I was going to be an extra, and we drove to the Hollywood Bowl, and there were stack parkings, you know, like you would at the. And I said, "Oh, are we going to be here at the bowl all day?" And they said. No, no, we're just parking you. We're driving you downtown in buses. I was like, oh, oh, I have to get my car out. Get my car out. Because uh, something in my brain said, you're no longer a Hollywood actor. You're now an actor. <laughs> Got my car out of there, and people were like shooting the bird at me and cursing at me. But I got out, and I called my friend Darren Vanderbeck, and I said, you want to go see Gremlins today? And that's, that was the last day I was a Hollywood extra because for some reason I knew that um, my time to do that was over. Now, I actually have a funny Hollywood extra story. Um, I was still a member of, uh, I remember Sally Pearl Casting was our extra agent. I'm grateful to them because I met one of my dear friends, Bob Ivey. Uh, we were extras on a show together, and then he ended up becoming my stunt double many years oh, wow. uh, yeah on the the day we met you know he's like what are you doing I, said, I want to be an actor what are you doing i want to be a stuntman and i'm sure we were both like this it isn't gonna do anything <laughs> but uh then our careers were uh, parallel for nearly 25 30 years after that um another guy i met as a hollywood extra was Dwayne whitaker who uh stars in a lot of my movies he and i uh are our dear friends we met as extras on General Hospital. Uh, but the story I want to tell you is years. So years after that uh, event where I pulled out, let's say two years, I still live in Hollywood, two years maybe. But in the two years since I backed my car, starting Cave Girl, River's Edge, Dudes. I may have already shot the Matlock. Anyway, um, you know, I, I was starring in one movie after another, right? Mm-hmm. And Project X, I wasn't starring in, but I, a good part, you know. Anyway, so I was, by that point, four movies and a couple TV shows in, and I get a call one morning, three o'clock in the morning, ring, hello, hello. You know, I, my wife at the time was like, oh, God, he died. Oh, and um, she says, yeah, this is, let's make a hand from Sally Broadcasting. Are you available tomorrow? Um, uh, sorry, what? She said, are you available tomorrow? Are you working? No, uh, tomorrow. But um, what is the question? And she said, well, we need you to come at 7 a.m. to be an extra. We got a last minute call. And, you know, that's why we're calling you now. And I said, not really available tomorrow. Next. And she said, are you working or not? I said, I'm not working. And she said, well, you know, if you don't say yes to this job, we may never call you again to be an expert. And I said, well, that, that's okay. Because kind of whatever, three o'clock in the morning, I said, I'm kind of starring in movies now. And the girl goes, oh, right. You're starring in movies. 
<laughs> uh, so that's a true story. My wife said, why didn't you just go tell her to F herself? Um, but uh, I don't know. But, uh, you know, it is funny where you realize, I, I guess I made the right decision. Because, <laughs> uh, you know. But I, I'll tell you who I treat like gold. I love them. I worship them because I make these movies. If I don't have the background, like, like, you know, that's like being, you know, Rembrandt, but not having the canvas. You need the background to put your actors in front of. And great background is an enormous boon to your production. It makes it look bigger. It makes it look richer. It makes it look professional. I mean, my God, you can tell these low-budget movies, they don't, they, they'll be like, you know, we're at the city council meeting and there's no one there. And you think, that's not like a city council meeting I've ever seen. So so you destroy the verisimilitude of whatever you're doing by not having the right amount of people there. Anyway, so I, I, I make a point of thanking my extras whenever I can and, you know, going out of my way to let them and but I do, and even movies that I'm not producing and directing, I make a point of, of getting to the extras when I can say. That's a, that's a hard I know what you mean when you talk about the importance of extras. I, I've worked as the uh, production assistant and co-producer in a lot of independent films. I know what it's oh. like when you, you know, you're, you're shooting something and everyone's busy and you got to, like, get as many people as you can to be extras. And sometimes you can only get, like, five people and it doesn't look right. So... Yeah, I understand the importance. We of just that. did a big football movie, and you know, we had to have hundreds, thousand people in the stands. Uh, so you know, you're never going to get thousands of people because you know, of course, I can't afford to pay them on these. You know, we make movies not for profit, um, family movies. And I'll say now, people can go to to learn more about it. But I don't pay the extras, so. All I can give them is my gratitude. Uh, but, you know, we do always have no doubt about. It. So, yeah, you know, like, you know, as a creative person, it just looks like that. Uh, it's like, looks like all those old Roger Corman movies, you know, the <laughs> 70s. If you really pay attention in the early 70s, you could see Jonathan Demme and Jonathan Kaplan and Alan Arkish <laughs> walking back and forth in each other's movies. They were like, whoever was that down at the studio, they'd be like, get over here and you got to walk in the background. <laughs> I'm kind of curious, though. Uh, how, how did you go from doing a comedic role in Cave Girl to convincing the producers that you were right for this dark, dramatic role in, in River's Edge? Because that's, that's quite a transition. Yeah. So, A, number one, much to my advantage, the people who made River's Edge didn't see Cave Girl. Uh. <laughs> So that that definitely worked in my favor. The other thing is, uh, and and this is something else I'm working on, uh, worthy of talking. And, and in a year, maybe we can talk again, and I'll I'll have this uh, ready for the world. I've been writing a book. Audition is the job, and other truths that I've learned in the land of make believe. And what I have essentially been doing, and I've been writing it for years, I am so close to finished making movies. Um, what I've come to realize is most everything that actors are taught 
as actors is horseshit. Um, they read these books, How to Audition and Audition, both books written by really smart guys, but both written in another time for another kind of actor in another day and age. Um, audition is written uh, for people auditioning on Broadway, yet everything that is in it, and it was written for people auditioning on Broadway in 1971. So everything that's in it has been kind of, you know, actors say, here's what you always have to do. You have to do this. Well, I will tell you, Cullen, that I never, ever did anything that followed my instinct. Uh, and how did I get cast in River's Edge? That's why I'm telling you the story. Because nobody told me to do it. In fact, if you read those books, they would have said, don't ever try anything like that. Would have, they would have warned you against it. I went into the audition for River's Edge already too old for the part shit i was too old to be the kid cave girl like i always say cave girl is a teenage sex comedy although the problem was none of us were teenagers there was no sex in it it's really not funny at all so uh i mean i'm cute but it's not really that funny but you can't blame anybody but it just wasn't the guy making it is a great guy but he was a funny guy you know and take someone with a sense of humor and make something humorous so uh, for that audition in River's Edge, I, I took my hair and I greased it down in white jelly. Uh, Bowser and I said he used to And I put on old clothes. And I stopped and I got actually a beer, two beer, on the way to the audition. And when I walked in the room, there was a chair. And I walked right past the chair and I sat against the wall in the corner. I opened the beer. I said, go ahead. That's how I got the part. They had no idea, no idea who I was. In fact, when I was cast, I went in to take Tim Hunter and Carrie Frazier bottles of wine after they finally cast me, but like an idiot, like how stupid I was, because I didn't know anything. I went in wearing a suit coat and maybe a tie and my glasses. And I went in with my wife, who was a little older than I was. And I walked in and I saw Tim Hunter immediately. I said, oh, this is for you. And I handed him the wine. And he goes, oh, that's so nice. Who's this from? And I said, it's 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 from me. Who are you? I'm Dan Roebuck. Well, dude, I almost got myself fired. Because <laughs> they thought they hired the other guy. And then I come in and I'm like, I like Looney Tune cartoons, whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, so that's that's how I've always done this. And I mean, I've I've always done it. And that's the reason I'm the book has to be written, because all of these these these, these tropes are wrong. Because there's no right or wrong way to audition. That's why you better have self-instinct and you better be self-aware and and you better be able to read people now you know in your life as a producer you've certainly met there's people who don't pick up on social cues right and uh if you can't pick up on social cues don't don't become an actor become someone because my ability to read social cues lets me know when i can push a joke it lets me know not push a joke and let me know when to pull back what I want to do, my instinct. Like I'm very good at reading people, rooms, and situations. Um, uh, a part I have. I can't fix your car. 
And when my, my beautiful son, Buster, wanted me to teach him how to throw a football, I had to watch it on YouTube, teach myself, and then go out. And I didn't know how to throw I just played a football coach, so I had to learn all over again. Thank God for YouTube. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's uh, the long answer to a, a short question. But I think it, you know, it really is the the foundation of how everything has happened from all the blessings I've had are from uh, following my intuition and being the guy when I walk in the room. When working on River's Edge, what was it like working with Crispin Glover? I've always heard stories about him at the time where he was just difficult to work with because he was just so extremely nervous that the directors just couldn't keep him under control. Was he was he difficult to work with on that? No, story? not at all. Nonsense. No, no, no. Crispin is a very good actor. He is a very unique and odd actor. And he was very odd, but he was not difficult. In fact, you know, I look back at that and I think, you know, Crispin, we, it was a little bunch of movie. Crispin was like, we should have chairs to sit in. You know, we were just sitting on logs. And well, wait, we, get, we should have chairs? And then I should have remembered that I was trying to sit in Lee Van Cleef's chair. I didn't even need my name on it, but just put some there for me to sit in. Uh, no, never, never difficult, but very unique. And I, you know, I was not a man of the world. I knew what I knew. Coming in a river's edge, but I would have, you know, Crispin. So here's the thing about River's Edge. Crispin was a star because of Back to the Future, and Roxana Zoll uh, was known because she got nominated for an Emmy when she was like 16 or 15 years old, 14 years old. And those are the two names in our movie. That was different. Um, so when we were all together, you know, Kate no. And Keanu, I, I auditioned. Uh, he was at the auditions for Project X. He went in. There was two groups of us going in, and he went in with the other group. I had my group of three, part of the other three guys, and uh, our group got cast. Um, no, excuse me. I'm just right. No, Keanu read. Maybe Keanu read with me. That's it. You know, isn't it funny? I'm remembering it. I'm really remembering it better now. Keanu was in my group, but he didn't end up in the movie. My Lance August ended up in the movie instead of him. That's 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 the story. That's the true story. Um, and I, I, you know, it didn't occur to me Keanu wasn't in River's Edge or in Project X because he probably got two other movies in between. You know, he was very, very much. He's a very like. Anyway, that's a side story. But, uh, I, you know, my friend Lance August, who's still my friend and was still, he was just in the Hail Mary. Uh, as an actor, you know, I always say, now, Lance, you can tell people you beat Keanu Reeves up that part in, in Project X. Does that make sense? So I auditioned for Project X and River's Edge within weeks of each other. One, I had to go in and convince him that I was in the Air Force. And the other, I had to go in and convince that I was a killed girlfriend. And uh, Keanu also was auditioning for me. But then we got cast in Project X first, but we shot River's Edge first. Uh, so uh, how things did be. Um, so it was, uh, 
by the time I got to Jonathan Kaplan, you know, Tim Hunter had already told a nice thing about me. That was good. My third movie has kind of acknowledged, somebody acknowledged that I did a good job. Um, does that make sense? Am yes. I, <laughs> I can follow that. And I'm sure the, the audience will follow it too. I hope so. And if you don't, write me letters. Find me, find me on Facebook. I'll try to. <laughs> so what, what do you remember about working with uh, Dennis Hopper on River's Edge? Well, I mean, like, I'm going to act like I'm not, I'm not an actor because I'm a cis and I've got the gift of the dog speaking through me. I'm an actor because <laughs> I love it. Working with Dennis Hopper, you know, you go to the set and the guy was a giant, a rebel without a pause. And, you know, that was, that was his early movies when he was my age. And imagine, you know, since then, all the other great stuff. Um, and, and we were obsessed with the pocketbooks now back then. It, it just got its first, like, resurgence years after it came out. So we were, just, we were obsessed with it. So I would, I think Dennis at one point said, okay, you can only ask me 200 apocalypse now questions every day. I loved it. It was great. And, you know, the other guys got a scene or two with him. I had weeks with him. You know, they'd leave and it would just be me and Dennis Hopper in the house and in the car and in the, at the river. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, it was just like, you're not going to, by the way, there's no better acting school than that. There is no better acting school. You're with Dennis Hopper. Right. And all you got to do is watch him and try to keep up, try to hold on. Awesome. Um, I, you know, you were very lucky, as I said before, you were very lucky to, uh, to get these, these big roles very early on. Um, what, what effect did having these roles in these films have on your ego and, and your outlook on life? And how did it change you as a person? Well, that's, you'd, you'd have to ask any number of my wives about that. My children make fun of my ego all the time. But I'm, you know, I'm very self-evident. I do make fun of myself. Now, look. You have to have an ego. You're an actor. I have an enormous ego. Look, all I ever wanted to be was an actor. All I wanted to be. That's what my vision was. Not that I was an actor, but that I was an actor. So I am grateful uh, that I have these opportunities, but it doesn't make me the best actor. But, you know, am I the best actor who could play that role? I, I doubt it. Luckily, they found me for this. Sometimes you think, well, who would it be? When we did the late, you know, uh, Betty Thomas said, you know, Bunky, Bunky, you were the only one. You were the only one. And I thought, geez, that would have been so great to know when we that they didn't have any other person to play Jay Leno but me. You know, I was the only one, I guess, who came close to figuring it out. Uh, so, the, you know, I think I have a healthy ego, but um, the other side of that is that ego has uh, that ego has, and this is the thing the ego has employed uh, many people over the, you know, because I have the temerity to say, I'm going to create a movie. You know, I've made movies. People who have never been in movies before. And, uh, you know, crew gets 
paid and equipment gets rented and, and food gets also get a lot donated. But you know what I'm saying? Like my ego has led to the advancement of others, right? So, okay. you know, is, is there a point where my belief in myself, thank God I believe in myself because it's been good not only for me, but for many people around me about that. And my ego is put, you know, my, my last wife is a great mother to my children. We're very close friends. You know, she used to say, you know, you're not funny. And I'd say, I have incontrovertible proof of that. We're living it. You're eating it. Your children are driven to school in it. And we pay for private Catholic school because I'm funny. <laughs> so I know that I'm funny. Well, don't tell me I'm not funny. You can tell me I don't take out garbage, or you can tell me I, I speak too much about myself, but don't tell me I'm not funny because I'm funny. Uh, anyway, so that's, you know, is ego a bad thing? Uh, it, it is if you think you're the only way. But look, you know, what have we come in contact with in, 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 in the last 20 years, something silly, weird, strange, awful has happened where everybody thinks they're right. So they talk about an actor's ego. I'm more concerned with I go down the street and somebody's shouting their politics at me, which is different than my politics, maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But they they feel like they know everything about everything and then read it on YouTube or whatever. Like they're like me. But then I don't say that I'm an expert throwing a foot. I say that I learned to throw a football because I saw on YouTube, but I don't profess to be the best football thrower in the world. You know what I mean? Right. So I, I, I see a lot of, I, I see that that's, that's what holds people back. Two things. First, primary fear. The difference between me and 500 other people in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania is I said I was going to go to Hollywood and I went to Hollywood. I didn't have any money. I didn't have anything. I didn't have any connections. I didn't have any money. I just went because that's what I felt was God's path. And other people were like, I don't know. I can't. I don't know. Whatever. Well, they go and they don't have success right away and they leave. I mean, I didn't, right. you know, what is the time frame you give yourself? You know, you're, is this the life you're choosing? There's no time frame on the life you're choosing. It's the life you're choosing. I, it sounds like uh, your, your humility has, has been a, 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 a important ingredient in having a successful career. Because, you know, some actors, they have a big ego and it ends up destroying their career. Yeah, I always wonder, you know, if people like, you know, you come across people and they're just jerk, you know, they're a-holes. And, and people, you know, when he became famous, he became a real jerk. And I, I think, I know a lot of people who were jerks when they were just sitting around, you know, the comic they're already jerks. What I mean? So I don't know if acting makes someone a jerk or if it's an opportunity to find a spotlight on your real personality. Look, I kept myself, uh, I kept myself a person. I, I maybe I don't get to church every week, like I, I, I do recognize uh, my place in the world is uh, I'm a cog in God's greater plan. So I have the plan He helps me with. But then I'm part of the plan for my wife, Tammy, and part of the plan for my children, part of the plan for the 25 boys that I just pulled out of nowhere in Buffalo, Pennsylvania and starred in a movie. Like, I'm part of all those plans. But I know that I don't, I'm not the manipulator. 
I'm just just doing what I'm supposed to. So I think that helps you. And I've, I've always kept away from Hollywood. I do not. Uh, perhaps, perhaps I would have done better. Maybe if I go to premieres and uh, hobnob, but I've never done any drugs. Uh, and I will tell you that in the 1980s, that that definitely had an effect on the parties I got invited to. Because nobody wanted me around because I was a bit of a square. Uh, I don't drink. I haven't had a drink since 1987, I think. I, I'm just not that, I, I, you know, I find more joy in my family and my friends. And my friends aren't, some are actors. I love that. You know, most of my friends collect toys, my hobby. So that's who I'd rather talk to at the end of the night. I mean, I, obviously, like I talked about Wayne Whitaker or Lane Sargas, I have many friends who are actors in my movies, you know, bread and butter, let's say, of my, the people I call when they're sit down, I call my friend and I talk about, you know, hey, I just went to the wax museum and I had a great week from the Black Lagoon. That's what I do. It's a little dumb. But it's me. In 1990, you got your first uh, regular TV gig on the David Milch series, Capital News. Uh, how, how did you uh, transition from being a uh, film actor to a regular TV uh, actor? Well, you know, I mean, it's you, I've just been I'm just an actor, so whatever whatever the medium was, I didn't I didn't really care. Um, I didn't uh, I, I you know working with David Milch, his reputation was. I jumped at the chance to audition. That that turned into Capital News. Unfortunately, nobody watched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was probably one of the smartest shows I've ever put on. I mean, my father, not you know, he's only high school educated. Dad goes, you know, Dan, I'm going to be honest with you. I can't understand a word you're fucking saying. Mm-hmm. And he reads <laughs> two, three newspapers a day, like nobody could understand it, um, as it was really smart writing because david milch is very smart so um yeah it just didn't last unfortunately uh and it also was a strange i was heavier and then i had this epiphany that i was going to die so i lost all this weight unfortunately i didn't and then i lost the weight they hired a heavy actor i lost the weight in the interim milch was very mad at me for a very long time (laughs) we're fine now but uh, you know he, he, he required me to get a lawyer and uh, it was very ugly. Um, and, and it was, you know, sad to be, you know, there was, there was a lot of, a lot of anxiety on that. Show. A lot of people worried about a lot of things. And uh, that's too bad, but, you know, I had a nice time. And whenever you get to go to the same studio for a few months in a row, you know, that's a real blessing. And it just wasn't meant to be. Uh, you know, Matlock around that same time, really here to before that, I was on the first of Matlock. I had a very interesting experience because I had just done the same. I played Will Stockdale in the theater uh, and, um, uh, you know, Andy had played Will Stockdale on Broadway and in the U.S. Steel Hour and in the movie. So, when we met and I said, I just played Will Stockdale, I had a I had an immediate connection with him. He couldn't get enough of that. Uh, we had a we had only one scene, but you know, that scene uh, was the thing that 
be on the show years later, years. You know, briefly, I'll tell you, we had a scene where I was a red herring in the episode, and, and Andy and I had one scene. And when we rehearsed the scene, he said, I have a pain. I was I have a pain right here. And in the rehearsal, he he pointed to his belly. I touched his belly and I said, uh, yeah, it's just uh, whatever it is. I don't know, whatever the joke was. And when we shot the master of the scene, he didn't point at his belly. He pointed below his belt line, the side of his, his waist. So, you know, in the scene, he, he pointed there and I pulled his belt out and I shook my hand where he pulled. His hand, and I was like, there, it hurts there. I think you're going to be fine. And, uh, you know, then he, you know, he could do his little comedy. And, you know, Tony Mordente, uh, the director who action in West Side Story, uh, Tony Mordente says, I don't know what, what you did yesterday, but the old man went to put you on the show. Uh, and I remember going to my agents and telling him that. He was like, yeah, that's great. That's never going to happen. And then, you know, Five years ago, I end up, you know, I get a call and they say, you're the new series regular on Badlock. I mean, you can't even make it up. One one day with, that's magic. And, and I know that uh, An- Andy was also one of your mentors. Uh, what, what effect did he have on you as an actor? What I remember most of all the things, I mean, when I say he was a mentor, we didn't sit down and say, damn, this is how you should be an actor. But when we would uh, be in situations and he'd say to me, he'd say, Danny, would you make this funny? Please make it funny. And because, you know, he had spent his whole life making stuff funny. So but I would always jump in. Yes, if we do this or what if we do that, yeah. uh, we'd create something. And then I always like to remind people we'd, we'd be, either, you know, just be nature of television sometimes you're working you wouldn't have time to rehearse thank you you know i wouldn't be exactly on it and he wouldn't be exactly on it but he'd say well let's just you know let's just go where jesus sleeps uh, and then you know we do the scene thing is you know i was around a lot of I, if i did write a biography it would probably be called the guy who stood next to the guy you know I stood next to Diamond Jones. I stood next to Andy Griffith. I stood next to John Pryor. I stood next to Rivers, Keanu uh, Reeves. I mean, I don't really care. I like standing next to people. So, um, you know, I'm, I just, you learn a lot from how people act. The thing is, you know, I go to all these, I, as a fan, I go to these autograph shows and I'd love to, you know, I'd go, you know, there's, you know, Mannix, you could just talk to the guy, you know. <laughs> I was once at a party. I don't name drop a lot, but I was at a, I was at Ernie Borgnine's 90th birthday, and uh, John Rickles was sitting right at our table, and he was, but, but you know, Mannix got up and did ten minutes. I I was, I was urinating on myself. It's so funny. The guy's just funny, right? So you, I go to these things, but the thing is, all these actors that I, you know, I work with for a moment. I think, you know, one day you're going to be at that autograph show because you're not going to be a star forever. Uh, you're, you're doing a thing about character actors. And here's the thing about what we, and then women. You know, I've created lifelong opportunities to work. Because I, you know, 
I was happy to be the guy who stood next to the I've, uh, you know, I'm always going to work. I'm never not going to work because uh, I've always have work. Uh, just how, how it is, uh, you know, and, and now, you know, they're, they're casting away from, uh, you know, being a 50-something-year-old white guy is not the best place in Hollywood right now because, you know, they're, they're just casting away from it. But the news for me is I figured out how to play green guys and blue guys and gray guys. <laughs> so, you know, I can keep doing that. That's my workaround. Uh, you know, I'll, you, oh, you're not hiring white guys? I'll be greenstritis. I'll be, I won't even be a guy. I'll be able to care. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with Daniel Roebuck. Next week, check out part two of the interview where Daniel will talk about losing the role of Marv in Home Alone, his transition from actor to director, and the brilliance of the late, great Norm MacDonald. That will be next week on What a Character. Now, if you want to reach out to us, please feel free to do so. If you have any guest suggestions or you just want to tell us how great you think the show is, you can send us an email at westgrovemedia at gmail.com. Or you can even leave us a voice message on the show website by visiting whatacharacterpodcast.com and clicking on the microphone button on the bottom right and recording a message. And while you are there, please submit a review and subscribe to our email mailing list. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for show updates, videos, and even memes. You can also show support by subscribing to us on YouTube and wherever you stream and download podcasts. Your support and outreach will definitely help us not only make the podcast successful, but will also help us gain more insight about you, the listener. Because if we don't have an accurate idea of what you like or don't like, then we can't make the podcast more suited for our listening audience. I should also mention that the link to our website and our numerous social media feeds can be found in the episode description. Anyway, that about does it for this episode of What a Character. Thank you for listening and take it easy. Bye.